0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.
1: By the book on BFM
0: 89.9. I began writing this book shortly after the end of my presidency, after Michelle and I had boarded Air Force One for the last time and traveled west for a long-deferred break. The mood on the plane was bittersweet. Both of us were drained, physically and emotionally not only by the labors of the previous eight years, but by the unexpected results of an election in which someone diametrically opposed to everything we stood for had been chosen as my successor. Still, having run our leg of the race to completion, we took satisfaction in knowing that we'd done our very best, and that however much I'd fallen short as president, whatever projects I'd hoped but failed to accomplish, the country was in better shape now than it had been when I'd started.
1: Hello and welcome to Buy the Book with me, Sharmila Ganesan, and my fellow occasional lover of political stories, Lee Shui Lin. Hello. And uh, joining us today because it is our book club and so we always have a third person to talk about the book that we've collectively decided on, Vijay Dore, occasional book reviewer, general
2: reader. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. I, l- I like how you dropped uh, "lazy reader" from the intro. Well, I
1: feel like now that you've done it twice with with us in a row, um, you know, you can lose that tag. Especially after the size of this book, I don't it's, think.
2: It's... Exactly, I was going to say that. You know, seven hundred pages. I finished in one month. No more lazy reader. I think uh, I've dropped that tag.
1: So if 700 pages is, um, a good enough intro for a book, uh, we're talking about The Promised, A Promised Land by Barack Obama. Um, it's actually his third memoir and it came out, uh, in November last year. So quite an interesting time for a book by a former president to come out because that was before Trump, um, lost the presidency, before Joe Biden came into power. I thought the best place to start just because of how much there is to cover with this book, um, Did you guys enjoy it? Because I found it such an engaging read.
3: Much to my annoyance, I loved it. Um, And so I should clarify, it's not that I dislike Barack Obama, but... um, It's only that it's a huge book. It is a rite of passage, right, for presidents who have left the office to write a book, uh, usually in an effort to kind of cement their legacy, to talk about their decisions, to to burnish their legacy in some ways, and also as a post-office money-making endeavour. And so, um, with that rather cynical lens, I was prepared to go in and be like, ah, here we go. And instead, it's such a good book. He is a very good writer. I mean, um, we can talk about some of the rhetorical devices that he he falls into it is a big book, and so you do see those patterns emerge. But overall, my goodness, I mean, um, it covers so much legislation, it covers so much policy making, so much deal making, and yet through it all, is just incredibly interesting and really well written.
2: Yeah, but I I agree. I love that book. Um I was a fanboy. I mean when when Obama was in office, I did not think I followed him enough and reading this made me relive that moments and you know, I was that guy on YouTube, you know, uh, going to all his old speeches and commenting, "Who is here after chapter 5?" Oh yeah, me, LOL. <laughs> <hello>, uh. <Yeah. laughs> I was I was doing that. And and you're right, Lin, you know, he he writes beautifully. It's so engaging. I mean, really dry subjects like, uh, you know, the finance uh, of the whole economic collapse, um, even climate change and all, you know, he, he really put so much thought into it. And you can see that in his in his writing. And, and all through it, you can just see his heart, right? Like, I really love the fact that he had a good heart um, and he was explaining it all. Obviously, I mean, there, we can take a cynical view about him trying to justify a lot of the challenges, but I just I just love the book I, and I felt uh, it read uh, really beautifully. I'm looking forward to the next 700 page, uh, part two of his book. So. I mean,
1: to come to that conclusion after reading this doorstop of a book, I think it already says a lot about what a good read it was. Um, yeah, you know, I, I found that thing about um, going to YouTube videos really interesting because I found myself doing that um, definitely with his old speeches, particularly, I think, before he became president, because back when he was elected um we, in the other side of the world, sort of didn't really know his journey to the presidency. Uh, so it was actually really quite interesting to look up some of those early speeches uh, before he became more, quote unquote, presidential. Um, but even throughout all of the historical events that he talks about, um, the financial crisis, the um, health care debate, um, sending more troops to Afghanistan, Um I was compelled to look up history notes and just to kind of compare what's happening um and the reason I bring that up is because more than a political memoir, even though that is what it is, I also feel like it's a great sort of um it's a great sort of history political history primer because it covers so much of not just American politics but global politics as well.
3: so I think it's in that spirit that it's worth saying um a few things, right so overall the the word that kept coming to mind over and over again throughout the book was, this is a very vulnerable book. And I think that that's important because he was the President of the United States. That is the purported leader of the free world. You know, the man who is, um, for many intents and purposes, the most powerful person in the world. But the book's very vulnerable. It showcases um, the, the indecision or sometimes the fear about his decisions. The fact that he went to a lot of effort to think about the cost of what he was going to do, very often the human cost, not just the the mechanics and the math. And um, I think that that's important because I went in thinking, like I said, that this was going to be about legacy because more often than not, that's what concerns presidents. You know, presidents are always thinking about how their four years, their eight years are going to be looked at. And he writes more from the perspective of someone who already knows how people perceive him and is instead saying, listen, this is how it was behind the scenes. I'm not here to necessarily go on and on and grandstand about why I was the only person who could have done this. And I think that lack of megalomania was somewhat refreshing <laughs> after um, after the state of US politics over the last few years.
2: Yeah, I, I, I resonate with that as well. You know, there, there's one part where he talks about uh, American exceptionalism, and and I really like that part because he he not only uh, you know tries to sell America as the only superpower, um, he doesn't doesn't just say you know we'll do whatever we want, but he focuses on a lot of watching how they act because they are expected to act in that manner, right? And and yeah, the struggles he goes through through the U.S. legislative process is is really sad. I mean, that's one part that I read and I felt. Oh my god, they they go through so much trouble. and And if you think about it and and I was reading up about this as well when i was when I was looking at it, uh, it is supposed to be, I mean the fact that uh, any law passed should go through the the House of Representatives and then to the Senate was supposed to be a safeguard, you know, for the for the democratic way of doing things. But it just became so messy and people just started uh, you know denying him anything even though it, it made sense and there was a quote I think someone told him the the Senate is the place where good ideas go to die you know <laughs> it was just sad to sad to read the realities uh, as, as you mentioned you know so. and and you compare it to Malaysia I mean we also have the daywan Rakyat and the daywan Nagara. but it's so much more easier for a ruling uh, party or a coalition to to, you know, for the MPs to pass it. And then even the Devan Nagara, I mean, I I can be corrected if I'm wrong, but I don't think they have the right to reject any law. They can just propose uh, recommendations. So it's, it seems to be much easier for us, whereas for them, it's just become such a painful process. Uh, and he shows that really well, I think, in, in his book.
1: Yeah, I think, I think some of that, um, the vulnerability, to me, comes across as a a sadness almost because, uh, in this question of legacy, we are coming into this book at a, a particularly interesting time because he's seen and, and he even acknowledges or questions, am I the reason why a Trump was elected? Mm-hmm. Am I the spark that brought out this ugliness, um, at the heart of America? Um, and I'm, if, I, if I'm correct about the timeline, Biden wouldn't have been elected yet when the book came out. So he wouldn't have known what was going to come next. So there's a certain heaviness of heart with which he writes this book. And you can you can feel it. You can feel it in um, the successes that he talks about, which is always tinged with a, a question or a, a sadness and I think at the end of the day, uh, even if we want to take the cynical view and to say he's a very good writer, he's a very intelligent man, he's very capable of presenting himself in a particular way. And yes, there is some amount of justifying certain things, right, like the invasion of Libya and so on, uh, which are a little bit difficult from where we are now. Um, But that said, a lot of it feels very real. It feels like a real... um, self-examination of do I even have a legacy
3: and I think that's what resonates with the reader yes um and none of it would work is if you didn't come away from the book feeling like and this is probably false, but feeling like you know who Barack Obama is. You know, feeling like you can call him Bear like his family and like he tells you to at the start of the book. But I mean, there is this sense of somebody who is interested in you getting to know him. And so for all the justifications, uh, for all the occasional, you're right, you know, him saying hey, I never left Bibi Netanyahu waiting. We agreed that he was going to take a break from The meeting, and then after that, he kind of turned around and turned it on me. I mean, for all those sorts of moments where it edges into calculation and um, I say this, you say that, um, that's rare. And because, for the most part, because you get the feeling that you understand, or he's trying to show you how he thinks, you understand that this is somebody who's very methodical, somebody who's very thoughtful, who's very process driven, and I think my favourite thing, and I said this earlier, but I just wanted to reiterate, I did not get the sense that this is somebody who felt that only he could have been the president because only he could have solved issues. Instead, it's more like somebody who, if you look at the the, the stratospheric rise to power at the start of the book, um, it's very much right place, right time. It's very much um, him solving problems at a uh, community level that instead keeps catapulting him and because of that I guess, I don't know if it's just very well disguised I I didn't get the sense that I was reading the book of of a megalomaniac. And because of that, the justifications don't feel so wrong.
1: And I think yeah. the, the ability to constantly include the people in the process. He names people. He, um, talks constantly about the team and all of the people who make something work. And I think that contributes a lot to, um, he's very much aware that he wouldn't be where he was, um, if it wasn't for all of these, um, invisible people in the, uh, you know, who helped along the process.
2: Yeah. And just coming back to what Lynn was saying, I, I completely agree. And, and I think he has mentioned it, if not in this book somewhere else, that the community organizing work that he did was the best education that he had because he was on the grassroots level, you know, doing the work. He said it was it was better than the law degree he got from Harvard, you know. And, and, and you're right. The meteoric rise, it just felt like and he was on overdrive. After the DNC address in 2004, he just became a global phenomenon and everybody just went like, this is our guy. And, and the tides of consequence, as he said, it just took him to the, to the presidency. And that sometimes I wonder whether, um, and connecting back to what Sharmila says, is that why he struggled to be a good uh, politician? Because he just was a guy with a really good heart. And the politics of it, he needed this right people around him to actually actually guide him and tell him, you know, you can't go and say this, you know, you, you are already really way down on the polls. You can't go and speak your mind like this. And I, and I felt like even though, you know, this book just covers the first couple of years of his presidency, you could see him maturing. And that's one of the reasons why I look forward to the next one. I want to see whether by at least the second term, he's become smarter about selling his ideas. He's become smarter about, you know, uh, doing things, it's just not the the substance, but also the way you sell it. And, uh, you know, I think he calls it stagecraft. So it's not just the substance, but the stagecraft. And, and I want to see whether he's matured into that. Obviously, you know, we can read up and see that uh, maybe Barack Obama was a great uh, community organizer, a mediocre president. But, you know, there's just so many elements in the equation that, that uh, hampered him from him from being such a great president that
1: so, we are talking about Barack Obama's uh, latest memoir, A Promised Land. Well, part one of it, anyway. Uh, let us know if you've read it. Um, do you plan to? Do you enjoy political memoirs in general? You can uh, WhatsApp us 018 789 8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, or write to us at Book at bfm.my.
0: Best Flipping Moments. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. By the time we entered Super Tuesday, the scale of our organization had mushroomed. Gone were the days when I could claim to know the majority of the people who worked for me. In the absence of such familiarity, fewer and fewer of the people I met in the course of a day addressed me as Barack. I was sir now, or senator. When I entered the room, staff would often get up out of their seats to move elsewhere, assuming that I didn't want to be disturbed. It made me feel old and increasingly lonely.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. It is our monthly book club episode. And so we're joined by Vijay Dore, who has kindly agreed to read with us A Promised Land, which is Barack Obama's latest memoir, part one of what's supposed to be a two-parter. And so we've been talking about the content, how we felt, I wanted to kick things off on this side of things by asking you guys what you thought of the structure, which is something Lynn you brought up earlier about those rhetorical touches, um, the particular way
3: in which he explains things. Um, did you, did that appeal to you? So I, I really like the structure um, because I it's chronological, but it's also thematic, and I think that's important because if he just run through a dry by the numbers run of his presidency, I mean it would still be interesting because ultimately you're the president, but I think the ways in which he draws on themes to kind of connect things together makes it all the better. Uh, I like that he is not shy about describing his adversaries and his allies alike. Um, you know, and so you get really interesting insights into how he felt about different presidents, about different prime ministers that he met. Uh, but the the thing that struck me, the the rhetorical thing was more like there are some moments in the book where this is what's about to happen. He is going to, take a break from something, he is going to see something that is going to spark a series of reflections (laughs) about, you know, this this boy's hand that I shook the stars in the night sky of Hawaii blah 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 and then he comes back and then it makes its way into legislation and I think if you've heard him speak before, um, if you've seen him make the rounds, there's a certain degree of um, recognition in that structure. I don't mind it. Um, The reason why he does it is because it's good storytelling. Uh, It does occur though so I think that it's just something that by the fifth or sixth time you're like, oh here we go, he's in Gandhi's house, he's about to start thinking.
2: I was going to say the same thing. I think I think he had a very uh, predictable structure, right? And and even the way he talks, you know, he he takes so long to say something because I think in his mind, you know, he's thinking about okay, does this re- resonate with my principle? Uh, what is the context? You know, is the listener ready to uh, uh, receive what I'm about to give? And then he gives it. And I think he write when I'm reading his writing, like you say, I'm like, okay, so he's mentioning the problem. Okay, he's going to tell us about all the considerations he had, and then how the decision came about. But uh, one of the other things that I wanted to point out, which I really liked, was how he used the people, uh, the characters in the book to reflect some of the, the deeper sentiments. I really liked how he used Michelle, for example, right? Um, you know, sometimes I'm left wondering, like, ah, could, could they have shown more interactions between him and Michelle? Because Michelle, uh, obviously, I haven't read Becoming. Um, I, I'm sure both of you probably have. Uh, Actually, but- I haven't. Neither oh, right?
3: have I. <laughs> I'm very interested in starting it after this. Though. Exactly.
2: Same here, right? I've put that in my list now. But you know, she comes off as, you know, uh, from the beginning, really, you know, uh, very protective of him. I mean, she's super intelligent, very grounded, very loving, but mostly she's super protective of him and the family. And how, um, you know, when he says he's going to stand, she'll actually say, don't even expect my vote. You know, she just feels like, and and she asks him questions, which he uses as a reflection of his conscience Like, you know, was it vanity that's making me chase all this? You know, she'll ask him, is it a hole you're trying to fill? You know, and and all these conversations will be a precursor for him to really developed the thought process that that he had, you know. And I really like that. And also, you know, uh, a bit more lighthearted where he used uh, his body man, you know, Reggie Love. You know, I love that character, right? Reggie Love and Marvin, if I'm not wrong. And and they'll be going in the plane, playing cards and, and they'll be like, it's okay, you know, we win sometimes, we lose sometimes. And Reggie will say, show me someone who's okay with losing and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> and you know, it's just such a simple line, but wow, you know, it just painted a picture of Obama, you know, even though he's such a thinker and and, you know a lot of heart but he's a he's a winner he's a he's a category a kind of a guy surrounded with those sort of guys you know so i I really like those little stuff that he threw in there to give uh, more color to his character.
1: Some of my favorite parts of the book is actually really when he's talking about his family, his relationships, his friends. And um, because there is stuff that's very dense, you know, there are, there are entire history lessons of countries in certain parts of the book. Um, very readable, very engaging. If you didn't know about the Iran American conflict or the Israel Palestine conflict, you could do worse than learning about them in this book. Um, but the parts where he talks about his grandmother, the parts where he talks about his daughters, um, they you know they they are really powerful because more than anything else they feel real um and there were parts where I was moved to tears when I read about him and his daughters and how he feels when um, I think they're in Brazil and and there's this moment where he feels like they're too grown up and that because they've grown up during the presidency, his relationship with them has changed. And then something happens and, and, you know, he has a moment with them. And I was like, this is, you know, this is the stuff of novels. And I constantly felt that. I think the thing about this is it's a memoir, yes, but the best parts of it feel like the best novels or fiction that you would read, whether whether it's um, a romance, whether it's family, whether it's a historical drama, whether it's a thriller. Um, they are just, I think he's, he's such a good writer that he brings out the story in each of these events in a way that I think few other people could have.
3: And you know what he has the benefit of? He has the benefit of being sh- uh, filmed and photographed a lot. Um, and, you know, a lot of those photos are in here as well, but what I mean is that because he's a beautiful writer and then because he has those images and we've seen him, we've seen these images, in fact, um, from, what is it now, 10 years ago, Um, you know, and and in some cases, we remember them. The book also feels cinematic, not just novelistic, but cinematic. There are moments um, and and I don't want to spoil them because I think it's really best that you come to it um, and and for that matter, that you come to the ending of the book without knowing exactly where it's going to end. But I think that Sometimes it's rare, but it happens. He flexes. Um, he flexes, and you see the Obama that we've seen sometimes on talk hosts, uh, talk show hosts. You know uh, that we've seen sometimes on uh, the correspondence Dinner. And he gets, in his words, a little bit gangster. And I think that because we've been so primed by by movies uh, showing the U.S. president, because this is a very photographed and filmed U.S. president. And photogenic. And photogenic, yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're very familiar with him. Uh, There are parts of the book where the really fun kind of flexy bits actually feel like a movie. (laughs)
2: yeah yeah I totally agree with you and I I probably know what you're talking about I think Reggie comes and tells him that there was some (laughs) real gangster stuff back there that was really cool but you know on the flip side of that did you also catch that uh, he really misses his anonymity right Um, he talks about a time when he was really stressed out about you know the war the economy the climate change and then in his dream he recurrently gets this dream where he's walking on a on a unnamed street and nobody recognizes him he's got nothing to do nowhere to be and and he says that it felt like he's won the lottery and and I'm not sure whether you watch this uh, comedians in cars getting coffee by uh, Seinfeld mm-hmm. and Obama is actually on on one of the episodes and Seinfeld asks him uh, what is the one thing you wish you can do you know that they don't let you do as a president and he says the same thing he says, uh, without skipping a beat you know he'll say I just want to be walking out on the, on the gardens or the or Central Park. Um, and, you know, I'm just walking. Nobody knows me. And I see you sitting there on the bench. And I said, hey, uh, Jerry, you know, and you said, hey, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm just strolling on a Saturday morning. You know, and he says he really misses that. And he, I said, you don't understand the value of it until it's lost. And the poor guy, you know, until he dies, he probably will never get that back, right? The most recognizable uh, president ever, I think. So it was quite sad when I read that. I just felt like quite, quite sorry for him that uh, he lost it so early in his life.
3: Yeah, I found that um, really striking and very poignant. Uh, the other one was where he talked about Michelle Obama's loneliness. And he drew that portrait in very stark terms. It was not even a chapter. It was like, I, I want to say five paragraphs just talking about Michelle Obama's adjustment to the White House and her trying to be a good wife and him uh, relentlessly staying calm, right? One of the things that he talks about is that when things get really bad, he gets calmer. He, he describes it as probably his best quality. And and, um, and it's really interesting to watch him parallel that to the presidency and the decisions he made, but also to his partnership, his personal romantic partnership with his wife and the decisions he made in that area. And um, again, not to belabor the point, but it's a good writer who, who is able to make you feel these things in a matter of paragraphs. All these things that we're talking about, the, the thing in Brazil, um, Michelle Obama, um, the situation with, with the, the recurring dream, all of them... I can see them in my mind's eye and they fit one page, you know, and, and it's it's a skill. It's a skill to be able to do that. I think in contrast to
1: um, that flexing um, and perhaps closer to what you were talking about, uh, Vijay, the, the sense of um, a sense of not melancholy, maybe just. I don't know how to explain it. It's this feeling of what could be or what might have been. The, the pervasive thing for me throughout the book, from when he gets elected, I think even possibly from when he becomes a senator, is the sense that I've become an idea. I'm no longer me. Um, and so people want the idea. People know the idea. But when you're an idea, you're not allowed to fail and i think that was one of the things that i think felt very real um in terms of that's something that i think many people feel on a to a certain extent with the relationships that they cherish um with what you're expected to do so what you said about oh poor guy the average person would say, oh, he's, well, he was the president of America. Who cares if he can't go get a coffee? But somehow, when you hear about these things, you're actually inclined to empathize with him, which I think is not easy to do when you're in such a position of privilege.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, You know, I while reading it, even I was trying to think about, um, you know, because he, he's very self questioning in the book. And, and I, I caught myself also thinking, uh, that you know, I can't decide whether Obama was was just an inspirational visionary uh, without the ability to translate that to actions uh, or or results. Or, uh, or should I you know, try to summarize him as someone way ahead of his time that in many years to come, people look back like, wow, we had this great guy, but there were systemic problems that didn't allow him to uh, achieve what he wanted to, right? He, in fact, in the book recalls uh, FDR, like uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and how he compares himself with him, like, you know, because he was uh, president during a depression and during a war. What would he have done? And, and many times he found himself... Uh, thinking that maybe FDR would have had the right uh, political play of this thing, you know, uh, less about the details, more about projecting confidence to the people, you know, make the bad people uh, suffer because his uh, recovery act uh, basically allowed for all these uh, banks and all these people to, to walk scot-free. And that was the biggest problem and that caused the the, the midterms uh, loss that they had, right? So, you know, these thoughts that he was having... and. You know, I, I can't help but wonder, and, and I wanted to ask you guys, what, what is the one thing you wish the book had and, and um, that wasn't there, you know, or something that was there that you didn't like? Um, I will go first. I wish that he had described how he maintained this level of endurance, you know, the kind of work he puts in day in, day out, um, from morning all the way to the end. I mean, he, he manages all these political problems, diplomatic problems, and then he goes and spends some time with family, puts the daughters to sleep. And then he goes back and reads letters from the the people. You know, that was one of the most heartwarming things for me. Like he actually reads letters every day, 10 letters a day. And he responds to them, tries to help them. And he writes letters to uh, fallen soldiers, families of fallen fallen soldiers. I'm just like, how did you have that endurance? I wish he spent some chapters telling us about his practice of mindfulness or, you know, whatever, meditation. What is he doing? You know, he's he's such a superhuman.
1: (laughs) I honestly and this is going to sound like a cop out. I can't think of anything else I want in this book. I actually I think it's really quite um near perfect as it is politics aside, because whether you disagree with his viewpoint on things as a book, I think it's great.
3: I just want more. I want to know what comes next. That's the thing. Who finishes a 700-page book and wishes that the 700 pages that come after it were there right away? And it's like, (laughs) like I said, I came into this pretty cynical. I I really was ready to be like, ah, here's another former president, you know, just all out to ensure that his legacy gets cast in gold and, you know, enshrined permanently. And I came away thinking, this is a great story. This is a great story of eight years. And I just want to know what happens with the remaining time that he has in office, Um, especially because he talks about how even the people around him didn't think he would make it past 2012, which is, again, very interesting. Um, I wanted to just say one thing, which is that we've been using words like empathy. And what I find remarkable about the book is not just that you empathize with Barack Obama, but that you relate. I I think that that's the crazy thing, that the ways in which he writes about his doubts, his processes, how he thinks, what he wants to do, how he sees the world, means that you actually don't just empathize with him in that you're not just saying, yeah, I can see your point of view, but instead you relate to him in that you think, I've been through that. And for somebody sitting in Malaysia who has never held political office and God willing never will, um, you know, it's it's a crazy thing to relate to a former president. And he does that. So we are coming close to the amount of time
1: we have. It is a huge book, so there's lots to say. Um, I just wanted to finish off uh, with a question that I asked myself, which is, did you leave this book in the end feeling a sense of hope, which is what he sells, right? Um, And I'm just curious, because it's a it's a weird time to even feel hope right now, collectively
3: for the world. I
2: was fired up,
3: I was ready to go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah, but I kind of I was I was having mixed feelings, you know, uh, one of the one of the hallmarks of a good leader, they say is that when you leave, uh, you leave the next guy to do something greater. Uh, and you've brought the country somewhere and then it goes beyond, right? Somehow when Obama left, and obviously the book is not done. I mean, it's not done with his presidency, uh, but his his process somehow brought about more friction, more racism. And it brought about uh, the people voting in someone like Donald Trump. And I couldn't help but, uh, again, the thought about, wow, he's such a great man, great heart, great thinker was he not a good enough president or a politician mm-hmm. to, to help the thing, you know? Um, that, that was my prevailing feeling. And, and it, it didn't feel like he wasn't good enough. It just felt hurtful that such a great guy um, couldn't affect the change. That's, that was my feeling.
1: I agree. I agree. Um, but I must say that all of that taken into account, in the end, I think what I came away with was that having hope is difficult but that we shouldn't lose hope. And and to me, especially, I think, given the last year that we've all had, um, that was a valuable lesson to be reminded of at this point in time. Um, we are talking about Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, uh, the p- part one of it anyway. Uh, let us know uh, if you've read it, if you plan to. Um, are you the kind who likes reading uh, politics, um, you know, biographies of politicians? You can tweet us at you can WhatsApp us at 18 789 tweet us at BFM Radio or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. brings us to footnotes and because we've spent much of the first part of the show talking about Barack Obama's A Promised Land, we thought we'd close things off by um, sharing some of our favourite memoirs uh, that
3: we've read that we would recommend. Um, Lynn, do you want to start us off? I struggled with this because I've read a lot of memoirs. Uh, turns out that they're one of my favourite categories of books and I didn't even realise it. Um, but I've spoken about a number of them before, so I just wanted to highlight two, one in brief, one in more detail. Uh, the first is Stephen King's On Writing um, because it is a great book. And I think for anybody who's ever harboured any aspirations to be a writer... You could do far, 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 far worse uh, than giving that a go. And it also covers just his life, which has been fascinating to say the least. Um, but the book that I actually want to talk about, because we've gone all serious with The Promised Land, is Have a Nice Day, A Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks. Um, and that is Mick Foley's autobiography. Um, How <laughs> oh, nice!
0: So- I was 18 in the fall of 1983. Upon graduation from Ward-Melville High School in East at New York that June, I had spent the summer lifeguarding at the Stony Brook Racquet Club and daydreaming about professional wrestling. Up on the stand for continuous eight-hour shifts, I had plenty of time to envision suplexes and dives off the top rope like my idol Jimmy Superfly Snooka while I watched over the well-being of a bunch of spoiled rich kids. My brother John, on the other hand, was in his third year as a prestigious town of Brookhaven lifeguard, which meant that unlike me, he guarded an actual beach that actual good-looking women frequented. In addition, he was given an hour off for every hour So
3: you may not remember uh, Mick Foley. Ride. He was a now, WWF back in the day, WWF wrestler. Uh, he went by, he was Mankind, he was Mick Foley. He was a number of, di- he went by a dif- number of different names. Um, but the he's a really good writer. I think that's the main thing to talk about. And whether or not you're a wrestling fan, I think just the whole world of wrestling is really fascinating. The idea of um, heels and baby faces, the idea of what is real and what isn't, what feuds are real and what isn't, what is it that drives somebody to want to put their head through a chair, you know? And I think that This book is a really fun read, and um, it's fun, it's fast, it's very well written, and it's fascinating. So, yeah, uh, Mick Foley's (laughs) Have a Nice Day A Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks.
2: I I fondly remember Mick Foley as the, um, you know, when he does a, a partnership with The Rock. Uh, yes. Dwayne Johnson And they call themselves The Rock and Sock Connection He <laughs> had this old sock In his hand For his finishing move It was a crazy never guy never
1: know where The show is going to go Suddenly we're talking About wrestling
2: <laughs> well
1: on that on that note, I also had one mini recommendation and one proper one, and I feel like this would be the right time to say. My mini one was actually uh Christopher Reeve or the first Superman's uh Still Me, which he wrote after he had his um accident and he became paralyzed. It's hands down one of my favorite memoirs because not only does it talk about his recovery, it also talks about his time in hollywood um and you know, Hollywood back in the sixties and seventies and how he became cast for Superman. Just a lovely but heartbreaking, uplifting read. But um, the one that I wanted to sort of talk about more substantively is not a happy one. Um, it's Hunger by Roxanne Gay. Some years ago, I looked up this boy from my past, wanted to know what had become of him. He does not have an uncommon name, but his name isn't John Smith. So I had a chance. I looked and looked and looked. It became a minor obsession. Every day, I scrolled through the hundreds of hits that came up when I searched his name on Google. I tried combinations of his name in the state where I knew him, but he no longer lives there. I tried to guess what he had become when he grew up. My first two guesses were politician or lawyer, so you can probably guess about the kind of person he is. I found him. He is neither a politician nor a lawyer, but I wasn't far off. People don't change. I wondered if I would recognize him. I shouldn't have. Roxane Gay, of course, is now has now made her name as a feminist icon and a writer. Um, but Hunger is her memoir um, detailing her struggles with weight gain um, and eating um and, and and her relationship or her rather her difficult relationship with eating but also sexual abuse and so she links all of these together um, talks about how unkind the world can be uh, to someone who is obese um, how unkind the systems that we are in but also the relationship between mental trauma and your body and how that manifests in your self-image how you can how you struggle to learn to love yourself it's heavy. Stuff, But I think most people who have gone through um, any amount of uh, weather judgment for how they look or dealing with um, the kind of psychological impact of being judged for how you look, uh, it's a great, great, great book. Not an easy book, but a really enlightening one.
2: Right. So I didn't know we should have one small one and one big one. <laughs> Sorry, but that
3: I, was an accident.
2: No worries. I, I probably could. Uh, I mean, I, I love reading uh, autobiographies and memoirs. Um, so I'll start with Tara Westover's memoir, The Educated. I think um, I've mentioned this before, even the last time I was on. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story about, you know, the struggle of this girl growing up in this fundamentalist uh, Mormon family. Um, you know, she goes through so much struggles but it's a book about reconciliation and forgiveness and how she comes out of that. I thought it was a, it was a really uh, wonderful read. Um, even for me, so far away, different gender, different religion, I could still relate a lot to uh, what she was going through. And that, that says a lot about the book. So I would recommend Tara Westo is um, educated. But the real book that I uh, want to talk about in more length is uh, Shoe Dog, autobiography of Phil Knight, the founder of Nike.
0: Don. I was up before the others, before the birds, before the sun. I drank a cup of coffee, wolfed down a piece of toast, put on my shorts and sweatshirt, and laced up my green running shoes, then slept quietly out the back door. I stretched my legs, my hamstrings, my lower back, and groaned as I took the first few balky steps down the cool road into the fog. Why is it always so hard to get started? There
2: were no cars, no people. Uh, that no is a book anymore. that, you know, I, anybody who talks to me about nonfiction fiction book, I'll, this is probably the first one I'll tell people because it, it's a thrilling read about how he started out from his interest in athletics, you know, leading up to this crazy idea that he could bring shoes from Japan. Um, Onitsuka Tiger, uh, more famously known now as uh, Asics. And he'll sell it uh, from his car booth in athletics meets. And, and how this crazy idea grew to become Nike as we know it. Uh, and, it and I say thr- uh, it, it's a thrilling read. It really reads like a thriller. Uh, it's just so much suspense and layers of excitement, anxiety along the way. And, and what I love most about the book is he weaves the, the story beautifully by contrasting uh, all the challenges that he goes through. And he goes through so many of them. Uh, with a lot of lessons that he picked up from his travels around the world prior to starting the the company itself, so you know uh, it's it's just beautifully weaved and and you know he's quick to discount his own skill sets, but he talks a lot and very intimately about the advice that mentors and how the people around him really picked him up. And I just felt that book, you know, it's, it's like what you said, Lin, when it finished, I just wanted to go on because, you know, he finishes at the point where Nike becomes a public listed company. But that Nike story just continues so much more. And, and you just can't help but think, I really want part two of this, you know. So, Shoe Dog, uh, autobiography of Phil Knight, definitely.
1: Well, those are some uh, interesting and very different sets of recommendations for you if you're into reading memoirs or autobiographies. But let us know, what are your favourites? Give us some titles. We always love recommendations. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.